This is Radio Sustain, a journal of fair trade, resilient rural communities, safe food, and a healthy environment. Brought to you by IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. IATP is celebrating 25 years of working for food justice. I'm Andrew Ranallo at IATP in Minneapolis. In today's Radio Sustain, we welcome IATP's newest staffer, LaDonna Redmond, who will be looking into inequities in the food system. Next, IATP's Ben Lilliston sits down with Kathy Mulvey from the Community Food Security Coalition to talk about prospects for reforming farm policy in these economically uncertain times. Finally, IATP President Jim Harkness explains why food security is a matter of national security and what the U.S. and others can learn from China's approach. LaDonna Redmond has been called a food innovator, and Responsibility Pioneer by Time Magazine. She's advocated equal rights to healthy food in Chicago and nationally for years. And now, she's bringing her experience and passion to IATP. We sat down with LaDonna to get her take on food justice, health, and what role IATP can play. So what is food justice? Food justice is a term that's used to um, say that people have the right to grow their own food, to produce that food if they like for their families and for other communities, or to sell or trade that food as uh, a way of life. How can we bring more people into the conversation from community leaders to policymakers and health professionals? We can bring more people into the conversation by making the translation from a a conversation that's really kind of over people's heads, talking about systems and commodities and things like that. People understand what's on the dinner plate and they understand the impact of that dinner plate on their physical health. Uh, And so what we can help do is to make that translation so people see their role in the food system. What role can IATP play in helping catalyze action on food justice? IATP can play a number of roles. One is to bring the resources to the table where um, IATP has done research and better understands the impact of the food system on people and the environment. The second opportunity for IATP is to actually create that network among community leaders, farmers, and um, farm workers so that now they can now come together and identify places where they can improve the public policies that have negatively impacted their lives from the food system. IATP can also play a role in changing the narrative around the American food system. We have to begin to tell the story around the food system that includes everyone, which means that we have to tell the story of a food system that's really based and built upon the backs of people who don't have a lot of rights or a lot of access to the public policies or, in fact, maybe invisible to our public policy infrastructure. What we want to do is to create a narrative that everyone can understand that explores the relationship by those people who have faced inequities as a result of the food system and how they can now be empowered to change the food system that they work in or live under. Keep an eye out for LaDonna's work on www.iatp.org.
Last month, IATP co-hosted an event with the Community Food Security Coalition, or CFSC, to talk about past Farm Bill successes and explore potential areas of action for the next Farm Bill. CFSC's Kathy Mulvey talked with Ben Lilliston about strategies and barriers to connecting public health, food security, and agricultural policy in the next Farm Bill. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing here in Minneapolis today and where else you're doing these type of listening sessions? So we're organizing a, a listening session working with ITP and other local co-hosts, um, including Land Stewardship Project and Crossroads Resource Center. And really the idea of these listening sessions is to gain broad and deep input into the Community Food Security Coalition's farm bill platform for the upcoming farm bill. So we're having an opportunity to have a conversation with literally hundreds of people in person over the course of these listening sessions um, about different areas where our coalition has had an impact in the past and where we might have an impact in the upcoming farm bill. How many of these listening sessions have you done so far? We've got actually two today, one in West Virginia and one here, and I think these are, this will put us to about eight at this point. What are some of the themes that have emerged so far? There are definitely some areas that are emerging as top priorities all across the country. Things like strengthening and rebuilding local and regional food infrastructure, um, a lot of interest in urban or community-based agriculture and what can be done to support that. Um, And then there have been also some, some regional differences um, and some some discussions that we've gone into um, in different sessions. So uh, in the South, we talked a lot about uh, corporate consolidation in in agribusiness and the impacts on community food security from that. Um, and out in California earlier this week, uh, we really discussed the social justice and dignity aspects, including workers throughout the food chain. In the past, how has uh, the Community Food Security Coalition engaged in the Farm Bill? What would have been some of the, I guess, wins or frustrations that, that you've had? Yeah, well, uh, well, Community Food Security Coalition played an integral role in getting the community food projects program within USDA off the ground and have really been a main force in strengthening that over the years since 1996 when it started. And so I guess other areas in the most recent Farm Bill, we worked as part of a broader initiative of really linking health issues into the Farm Bill and and, um, strengthening the intersection of our food and farm policy with public health. Uh, And so that's definitely something that we want to build on uh, in the upcoming Farm Bill. And, you know, I think the the challenges are going to be significant this time around. Why do you think that? What are the challenges? What are the obstacles here? Well, we're operating in a time of great economic uncertainty throughout the country with a lot of budget pressure and talk of deficit reduction in Washington, D.C., and unfortunately, you know, a lot of the direction of that conversation seems to be disproportionately targeted at low-income people and balancing our budget on the backs of, of folks who really most need 
some help at this point in in terms of our federal policy. So it's it's definitely um, an uphill struggle, and I think that's why this kind of engagement at the grassroots is so important right now um, to really get people inside the Beltway to have to listen to their constituents outside the Beltway about uh, about priorities and about about what makes sense for communities in the country. You know, investing in strong local and regional food systems can be at the at the core of an economic recovery as well as providing healthy food for people. Mm-hmm. You talked about the the challenge now, but but it seems like also uh, it's a different time in terms of the food movement in general from the last far bill. It seems to be growing. Is that your what you're seeing too? Are you seeing more people interested in the farm bill in general? And- Definitely. And we've had a really wide range of people engaged in these listening sessions, the large majority of whom uh, in our pre-session surveys are saying they, they don't have experience with a previous farm bill. It does seem like this opportunity, which you know folks understand only comes around every five years or so, um, is a really important time for the, the work that, that people are doing on the ground, you know, in the sustainable agriculture movement, in their community gardens, in um, farm to school projects, and, and a whole range of, of other initiatives that are really bubbling up at this point, um, it's a really, really critical time to then turn those successes into federal policy that will that will support and allow replication of those efforts, as well as, you know, removing obstacles in, in federal policy that might exist to, to stronger um, local and regional food systems. Learn more about the Community Food Security Coalition at foodsecurity.org. Making sure everyone has enough to eat is a problem anywhere you go. It's becoming a growing concern as food prices rise around the globe. China is no exception. With a growing population and increasingly stressed world markets, how does China ensure its people, a 22% share of the world's population, remain fed? IATP President Jim Harkness comments on what the rest of the world can learn from China's approach to food security. Sounding the alarm about various threats posed by a rising China has become a cottage industry among pundits and politicians. One of the oldest of these dire warnings is that China's increasing demand for food will wreak havoc on international markets, causing mass starvation in food-importing countries. Although it's the world's largest wheat producer with an annual harvest of around 115 million tons, China's current imports are negligible. But the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations recently declared a food emergency in China due to a -a once-in-a-century drought, bringing dire warnings that if China turns to global markets to make up for a poor harvest, they could outbid developing countries and sharply drive up prices. The problem with these warnings is the if. China is not a big player on global grain markets, even in years when harvests fall short, because of its policy of maintaining a large emergency reserve. The exact size of China's wheat stockpile is regarded as a state secret, but the FAO estimates it at about 55 million tons. Others claim that privately held reserves could add 30 million tons to that figure. This means that about one-half to two-thirds of the country's average annual total harvest is available for use in precisely this kind of emergency. This has helped largely insulate China's domestic grain markets from the ups and downs of world markets over the years, to the benefit of both China and the rest of the world. And although we can't predict 
that China won't disrupt the global grain supply through imports, we know that unlike countries without reserves, they have the wherewithal to meet their domestic needs themselves. The idea of storing surplus grain in good times to guard against famine and lean times dates back at least as far as the Old Testament, when Joseph gave just such advice to the Pharaoh. Its history in China is almost as long, and ancient records describe how the emperor's ever-normal granary not only prevented famine, but allowed the state to stabilize prices for the benefit of both farmers and consumers. Although China maintains vast reserves of grain and other foods like pork and edible oils, the United States and most other countries have abandoned this wise approach. Thirty years of neoliberal market fundamentalism has treated agriculture and food like other consumer products and not like a necessity of life. The World Bank and IMF actually forced many African countries to sell off their state-owned food reserves, arguing that markets would be much more efficient at meeting their food security needs. This free market system left food importing countries without a lifeline when global prices spiked in 2007, and in the following year the ranks of the world's hungry swelled by another hundred million people. Fortunately, the idea of grain reserves is gaining traction again. It will be among the topics of discussion at the G20 summit in France in May as a response to rising global hunger. West African countries are considering the establishment of regional reserves. Asian, Asian countries are starting a rice reserve. And the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, are exploring options for a collective food reserve. Thus far, the United States has resisted these proposals despite the lessons of the last food crisis. But that could change. Earlier this month, the U.S. Department of Agriculture reported the lowest stocks for corn in the last 15 years, putting us just one severe weather event away from a major corn shortage. And major agricultural exporting countries like Russia, Argentina, and Australia have all experienced droughts that have limited crop production and further tightened global grain supplies. Certainly, China's food system is far from perfect, and Chinese demand sometimes does impact global prices. But overall, for a country that must feed 22% of the world's people on 9% of its arable land, China has clearly figured out something that others haven't. Over the last three years, it has been made abundantly clear that our global food system is more and more vulnerable to disruptions. In this new era, China's approach to food security as national security may offer some important lessons for the rest of the world. Find out more about IATP's China work at www.iatp.org slash China. Radio Sustain is a project of IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Find us on the web at iatp.org. Radio Sustain is produced by Ben Lilliston. Radio Sustain's engineer is Patrick Sai. The music on the program was All the Little Things by Fort Wilson Riot, World's Fair 1964 by Dada Trash Collage, and Go Outside by The Cults. I'm Andrew Ranallo. Thanks for listening. Oh.